This is Daf Kavzayin in Masechet Megillah. We are on Daf Kavvav Amud Bet, six lines from the bottom of the Amud in the middle of the line. said, If you have uh, coverings of Sifrei Torah, cloths that cover Sifrei Torah that, re- that wear out, we use them as shrouds for a mit mitzvah, for a person who is dead and has nobody who has passed away and has nobody to bury them. So it's called the mit mitzvah. It's our responsibility to bury them. And that is considered how we put it away, how we dispose of it in a respectful way by doing a mitzvah. If you have a sefer Torah that has worn out, we bury it together with the tamit chacham. Even somebody who is shonalachot, meaning somebody who is just uh, not necessarily an advanced Talmud Chacham, a Talmud Chacham that's learning the uh, most advanced depths of Torah, but even somebody who just knows Halacha, knows the Mishnayot and the Braytot, that's a sufficient respect to the Sefer Torah that could be buried uh, together with this individual. We place it into an earthenware vessel. As the Pasuk says, you should place it into a, an earthenware vessel so that it lasts for many days. In other words, we don't want it to uh, disintegrate immediately. So another sign of the respect for the Sefer Torah is that we put it into a earthenware vessel when we bury it with the Tamir Chacham. We can turn a synagogue into a Beit Midrash, that's okay, but to switch it around, to go from a Beit Midrash to a Beit Knesset, we're not allowed to do that. He said the opposite, that you're allowed to turn a Beit Midrash, a place of study, into a synagogue, but not a synagogue into a house of study. The first way makes more sense. That because we know the halacha is according to Yeshua ben Levi that we can make a bet knesset a synagogue into a bet midrash but not the other way around. taught what does it mean in the pasuk when it's talking about the destruction of Yerushalayim it says. He burnt the house of Hashem. We're talking about the Beit Hamikdash, the house of the king. But called Batei Rushalim, all the houses of Jerusalem. But called Beit Gadol, Sarapesh, and every great house he burned in fire. He's talking about when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Yerushalayim. So the uh, the question is, what is each of these? What each of these phrases referred to? Bet Hashem, we know, is the Bet HaMikdash. When it says the house of Hashem, it's talking about the Bet HaMikdash. Bet HaMelech, El Patrin Shemelech. So obviously that king's house is the palace. Vet Kol Batei Yerushalayim. And all the houses of Jerusalem, Kimashma'an. That's what it means. It means the house of Yerushalayim. Vet Kol Bait Gadol Sarpesh. What does it mean? Every great house he burnt in fire. And it should say here, Peligiba Rabbi Yochanan Rabbi Yishob Ben Levi. Rabbi Yishob Ben Levi and Rabbi Yochanan argued about this. One said that the great house is the house that they teach Torah. The Torah is made great. In other words, a Beit Midrash. A house of study. The other one says, no, it's a place where tefillah is made great. In other words, a synagogue. The one that says it's talking about Torah is basing himself on the Pasuk that says that Hashem desired for the sake of his righteousness to make the Torah great and glorious. So great means the Torah. According to uh, the one who says it was a house of tefillah, that it was the synagogues that were burnt. He's basing himself on a different pasuk, the pasuk that says, uh, Tell me all of the great things that Elisha did, and Elisha did things through tefillah, so obviously 
It's talking about prayer. We can conclude in this machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. There was Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi who said that a great house is a reference to a Beit Midrash. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi by Beit Midrash because he said that you can make a synagogue into a Beit Midrash. In other words, in the eyes of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, the greatest kind of house is a Beit Midrash where you learn Torah, even greater than a house where you pray. Now we conclude from that 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 was Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi who said that. If you sell a sefer Torah, you cannot buy other books of Nach. By the way, they asked a question. What if you are staying on the same level? In other words, we know that we can't sell a holy item to buy something of lesser holiness, but what if we sell one thing to buy something of the same level, such as we sell a Sefer Torah to buy another Sefer Torah? So on one hand, you're not taking the money and buying something higher. So maybe it's not allowed. But maybe here, since there is no higher level, in other words, in other cases where you could say, well, since you already sold this item, buy something higher with it, so it doesn't make it for nothing. So there we understand. But over here where there is no higher level, maybe to go laterally to another Sefer Torah would be allowed. Tashma, come and listen. It says that if you sell a Sefer Torah, you can't buy other books of Dach. The implication is that you can't buy something of a lesser sanctity, but you could buy another Sefer Torah. So it says, Matnitin diavad. The Mishnah is talking about where you already sold it. Right? We're talking about whether you can sell it initially to buy another Sefer Torah, not where you already sold it and he wants to know what to, what to do with the money. And he's not allowed to buy Sefrei Nach, other books of the Tanakh. He has to buy a Sefer Torah with it at that point. But can he sell a Sefer Torah initially to buy another one? Tashma, come and listen. Golilin, a Sefer Torah Chumashin. You can take wrappings that were used to cover Chumashin, which is just the individual books of the Torah. It doesn't have the same sanctity as the Torah itself. It's Breshit separately or Vaikra separately, separate scrolls of the books of the Torah. You can use the wrappings of those to wrap a Sefer Torah because it's going up in holiness. But you cannot go the other way. Um, but uh, and you can take uh, you can take coverings of neviim and kituvim, prophets and writings, and you can cover the chumashin because chumashin, even though they're not complete sifrei Torah, they're on a higher level than navi and the writings because they're still the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. But you can't go the other way. You can't take um, coverings of chumashin of the individual books of the Torah and cover Nach, cover the prophets and writings. You cannot use the Sefer Torah covering and use it for the Chumashin. So So it says you can roll the Sefer Torah in the coverings of Chumashin. So that implies that you can't go laterally. In other words, you can use um, something of lesser sanctity, take its cover to cover Sefer Torah, but you can't take another Sefer Torah's cover to cover this Sefer Torah. So that shows you can't go laterally. It says, Ema Sefa. But you can't necessarily uh, conclude that because look at the end. It says that you can't cover Chumashin with the covers of a Sefer The implication is that you cannot cover uh, with an, with a uh, that it is okay to cover with another Sefer Torah. In other words, the uh, so in other words, you can read it both ways. You can read the the clause that says that you can cover a Sefer Torah with a lower level Sefer. It, it, we said that implies that you can't cover it with the same level sefer. But what about where it says you can't go down in holiness, right? So the implication is if you stay on the same level, it would be okay. So obviously, rather we can't learn anything from that brayta, whether one is allowed to 
uh, move laterally on the same level of Kedushah. Tashma, come and listen. Manichin Sefer Torah al-Gabe Torah, Torah al-Gabe Chumashin, Chumashin al-Gabe Nevim u'Ketuvim. You can place a Sefer Torah on top of another Torah. You can put a Torah on top of Chumash. A Chumash, again, is not talking about a Chumash that we have today, but it means an individual scroll of one of the five books of the Torah. You can put those Chumashin on top of Nevim and Ketuvim, on top of Prophets of Alon Nevim u'Ketuvim al-Gabe Chumashin. But you can't take a book of Shmuel, for example, a scroll even, and put it on top of a scroll of Bereshit. Velo Chumashin al-Gabe Torah, and you certainly can't put the Chumashin on top of a Sefer Torah, right? So, so what do you see from there? You see from there that a Torah on top of another Torah is allowed. So it says, How can you compare? How can you bring the example of placing one thing on top of another? We're not talking about that. We've been talking about the funds for one being used for another, right? But it's impossible to get away with placing a Sefer Torah on another Sefer Torah. Why? Because we wouldn't be able to roll a Sefer Torah because by rolling it, you're obviously putting parts of the scroll on tops of other parts. One page of a Sefer Torah is always going to be on top of another one. Rather, since there's no way around it, we say you're allowed to roll the Sefer Torah and you're allowed to put Sefer Torah on top of each other. But we say the same thing with regard to putting one Sefer Torah on top of another. But uh, that doesn't mean that, you have, that selling a Sefer Torah to buy another one is permitted. That just means that rolling it or stacking them is allowed. Tashima, come and listen. Rabbi Barachana said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, who said in the name of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, Lo yimkor adam sefer Torah yeshan, likach bo chadash. A person cannot sell an old sefer Torah to buy a new one. So you see, again, you, so you see clearly you can't do it. That's different because over there maybe he's selling the old Sefer Torah and he has to now commission a new one. But we're asking. The question is, in other words, when he, he can't sell an old Sefer Torah with the intent to buy a new one. Why? Because maybe he won't get around to it and then he won't, it'll end up with no Sefer Torah at all. Right? So he just ended up wasting the, uh, the money that he took. However, um, if, we, if there's already a new one written and it's waiting for him, can he sell his old Sefer Torah to buy the new one? That is left as a question. Tashma, come and listen. Rabbi Yochanan taught in the Rabbi Meir, said in the Rabbi Meir, You can only sell a Sefer Torah to give you money to learn Torah or to marry a woman. So you see, selling Torah for Torah is allowed because you're allowed to sell the Sefer Torah to learn Torah. Says no, deal mashani Talmud. That's different. That's learning of Torah. Just because you can sell a sefer Torah to learn Torah doesn't mean that you can sell one Torah to buy another Torah. Because selling Torah to learn Torah, learning Torah is even higher than anything else. Because learning Torah brings you to fulfill the Torah. Because we say that a, a, a marrying a woman to have children is the purpose of the whole creation. Hashem didn't create the world to be empty. He created it to be settled. About Torah, but, Torah, but it could be that a physical Sefer Torah being sold to buy another physical Sefer Torah would not be allowed. That a person should not sell a Sefer Torah even if he doesn't need it. said, Even if a person doesn't have food and he sells a Sefer Torah to eat or he sells his daughter into slavery to give him money to be able to buy food to eat, he will never see a sign of bacha from that money because it's a bad thing to do no matter what. And, the, and when we talked and the, the Mishnah said that when you sell these items and you have to keep, take the funds and buy something of a higher level of sanctity, that applies even to the change. Meaning even if you already fulfilled the obligation, you sold uh, one item and you bought the item of higher sanctity, whatever money is left over is not now redeemed. Whatever money is left over now has to be applied to the higher thing as well. That's only true. That's only true if they sold, uh, that, uh, if they sold it 
and they left over money. But if they collected money for a cause, say, for example, they collected money to buy a sefer Torah and then there was extra money, they can actually use that money for other things. They don't have to use it for something higher than what they collected for. No, what did we say? This is only true when they didn't make a condition, but if they made a condition, they can use the money for whatever they want. What is it talking about? If it's talking about where you sold the item and then you left over money, then, it should, then making a condition doesn't make a difference. Who said you can make a condition if you sell one item to buy another item? You can't make a condition on the leftover proceeds. All of the money has to go to the higher thing. Rather, it's talking about where you collect the money and left it over. And So you see that you're not right. What Ravaz is saying is not right. You can't just collect money for a cause and say whatever money is left over you can use for something else. It's not true. You have to make a condition. Because obviously that's speaking about where you made a condition. No. It's not true. Even when you sell something and you have money left over, you still need a condition. When is it true that the money is restricted in its use when the, the uh, trustees, the seven trustees, did not make a condition in the presence of the community? But if the seven trustees of the city made a condition in the presence of the members of the city, then for any purpose, we'll see what Duxusia is in a second. It's also permitted, right? In other words, what it means to say is that the money that is uh, from a sale, so Ravai still could be correct, that if you collect money for a certain cause and there's leftover money, the money can be put to any purpose that the community deems fit, even though it was originally collected for a very high holy thing like a Sefer Torah. When it comes to selling an item, all of the proceeds have to go to... Uh, to the higher um, uh, purpose, even if there's leftover, let's say they sold a uh, they sold one thing and they bought the other thing, so and there was leftover money. That leftover money also has to go to the higher thing, unless they made a condition, unless the trustees made a condition. Now Tosfot asked the obvious question, which is that we already said in previous dapim that if the trustees make a condition, then the money can be used for whatever they want. They don't even have to use the core money from the sale for any particular purpose. So why would they, why would, what's the the difference between that and where there's leftover money should be the same exact thing. In other words, why do you have to tell me that if they make a condition that the leftover money is permitted for any use? Really the whole amount of the money is permitted for any use if they made a condition when they sold the synagogue, let's say that they were going to use the money for whatever they wanted. So the answer is, Tosafot says that you might have thought that that extra money doesn't require that condition. That it's true for the core funds that, that the condition would be required. But you might have thought that for the leftover funds, the condition wouldn't need to be in place. And therefore you see that uh, even for the leftover funds, um, the, that condition needs to be there to prevent them from having the Kiddushah that requires them to be used for a higher purpose. The Abbe said to one of the rabbis, who, who usually recited Braithot in front of Rav Sheshit, he said, What is this Duchsusia? He said, He can use the money even for Duchsusia. What is it? He said, You're right, I am around Rav Sheshit all the time. And he actually said as follows. Uh, he explained it. It means the, um, it means the uh, mailman of the city. Okay, it's talking about the, uh, the person that's hired by the city to be their mailman to uh, take care of correspondence. That's what, so it's saying they could even use the money for that if they made a condition on the sale. 
This teaches you a lesson, says Abaye, that if you ever hear a word and you don't know what it means, so you should ask somebody who hangs around the rabbis a lot. Because it's very likely, he says it's impossible that they wouldn't have heard the explanation from some great person. Obviously, it doesn't literally mean that, but the point is that you have a good chance that he might have heard an explanation of a term that's unclear to you. If a group of people from one city go to another city, and they make a charity drive. They should give to it. And when they're leaving the city, in other words, they should prepare, they should participate in the fundraising with the city that they're visiting. But at the end, they should take the money that they contributed and bring it back to the uh, poor people of their own city. Similarly, we learned if a delegation of people from a city goes to another city, and they are required to get tzedakah because they, everyone is giving tzedakah, they're pledging it, they should give it. But when they leave the city to go back to their home, they take the money with them to pr- provide for the poor people of their own city. But if an individual goes to another city, and everybody is uh, given tzedakah and he's required to give it as well. He has to give it to the members of the town that he is visiting. He doesn't take it back with him to his own place because he's just an individual so, so he goes along with the community where he is at that time. One time Ravuna declared a fast. So the and all the people from his city came to the to the prayers with Rav Huna, where they were having a fast. They demanded tzedakah from everybody to give, and vayavu, and they gave. When they wanted to go back home, Amrule, they said to him, should the master should give us our money back? Because we were a group, we were a delegation, and the rule is that when a delegation from another city comes and they give funds to the charity drive, they get to take those funds back to the poor people of their own city. So uh, they said to him, please give us the money. We want to go back and bring the money to the people in our... Uh, neighborhood. Amalu, we said to them, Tanina, we already learned about this. That That's only if there's no Tamir Chacham in charge of that city where you're visiting. If there's a Tamir Chacham who's involved in the financial and practical matters of the city, so then you should give it to him. In other words, even though you're visiting delegation, since there's a Tamir Chacham in charge of this fundraising, you should leave him with the money. And moreover, and the truth is that both the poor people in your neighborhood and in mine depend on me because it seems like from the fact that they went there to participate in the fast that these two communities were close, intertwined a great deal, and therefore this money would eventually find its way and trickle down one way or another, even to the people of their city. So therefore giving it to this other town was really in a way giving it to the poor of their own town. The Mishnah says, You shouldn't sell a public property to an individual. Because you're going to lower it from its holiness. You sell a synagogue to an individual, it's not going to have the, even if you praise in there, it's not going to have the mitzvot of Kiddushah, Kaddish, and so on happening in it anymore. Um, the, uh, the rabbi said, that's Rabbi Meir. But the rabbi said to him, So according to you, you shouldn't even be able to sell from a large city to a small city because less people means less holiness. So the Gemara says, The rabbi said a good point saying, what they said back to Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir says it's not such a good argument because the fact is that a synagogue, whether it's of a small or a, or a large city, the same mitzvot are going on, the same kedusha is there. 
right? Um, so that's different than going from a, from a communal property to an individual property where it loses that Kiddusha. Once you're going to be worried about the, the dissipation of the Kiddusha, going from a, a, a community to an individual, so you should also be worried about the fact that it goes from that there's great honor to Hashem in large numbers versus less honor to Hashem in small numbers. And that should that should necessitate that uh, that you shouldn't be able to sell from a large to a small city either. Rather, the rabbis conclude that there's no restriction whatsoever on that. The Mishnah says in Mochuin Betekneset Elal tonight, you can only sell a Betekneset on a condition that you might want it back. That if they want it, they'll take it back to Rabbi Meir. That's what Rabbi Meir said. In other words, it's sort of a formality. What he means is that when they sell it, they should put a condition that they're allowed to take it back because otherwise it looks like they're getting rid of it. This way it shows that they're still attached to it. They respect it. The rabbi said, no, you could sell it for anything, for permanently. You're not allowed to sell it for four things. For a bathhouse, for a place where they tan hides, which is very disgusting. For a mikveh, or for a bathroom. You can sell it just as a courtyard. Whatever the buyer does with it, he wants to do with it, he'll do with it. Right? So the, uh, the point is that um, according to the Chachamim, you can sell it for a permanent sale, but not if you know, not if it's explicit that it's going for one of these um, uh, disrespectful uses. Um, and Rabbi Uda comes in and says, you could just sell it stum for whatever, and the buyer will do with it what he wants. Now the problem according to Rabbi Meir is that if I, if anytime I sell a synagogue, I can only sell it on a condition. So that means basically in a way, um, when, when the, the community takes the money from this person who bought the synagogue, it's almost like a loan to them because they're saying we might want to re- you to return the synagogue and we're going to give you back your money. So what happens? It's like they borrowed the money. Let's say it was a, let's say it was a million dollars. They borrowed the million dollars. They eventually take back their synagogue. But meanwhile, they gave him interest because they allowed him to live for free in the synagogue. Rabbi Meir is following the position of Rabbi Yehuda, who says one side in ribit is allowed. In other words, over here, what's happening is that uh, you're, the, the way that the ribit is happening is, a, is not, necessarily, not necessarily definite because the fact is that it's only if you decide to rescind the sale that it would be a... Uh, uh, that, that it would be uh, ribit. But in this case, we're talking about um, a person who uh, created a condition. So since the condition might never happen, it's not really considered ribit in this case. It's not considered taking interest. As we have, a, we have in the bright that says, if a person um, had a, uh, was owed a maneh by his friend, and he ends up... Um, uh, he ends up selling the property. So, if the seller is eating the fruits, it's okay, right? But but if the if the uh, buyer is uh, eating the fruits, it's not okay. In other words, what happened here was that the person who borrowed the money sold the property to the uh, to the lender. So, if the lender now uh, partakes of it, and then in the end. He uh, ends up returning that property back to the uh, to the borrower, so it's like he took um, he took uh, uh, interest on the loan that he made to him, right? That's what the chachamim says. So therefore, you can't do that, right? Because it could turn out that eventually the sale is going to be reversed. It's going to come back to the original owner, and it is that all along um, he was benefiting extra from the loan that he gave me. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, even if 
the buyer partakes of the fruits of the place in the meantime, it's allowed because it may, never, might never be reversed. It happened with uh, this exact same thing with a person named Baitus Ben Zonan that he made, he sold his um, his field in accordance with what Rabbi Elazar Ben Azariah told him. But and the person who received the field was eating the fruits and Amulo and, and you see that it wasn't a problem. Amulo they said to him, How can you bring a proof from there? It wasn't true. He, the the buyer was not partaking of the fruits. It was just being held under his name, but he actually didn't. The bu- the buyer did not actually uh, partake of the fruits, so therefore there was no issue that he would be, it would be considered that he was taking interest for the loan that he gave, right? So that so so you have your facts wrong. That was so my The is whether a one sided uh, one sided um, type of a. Uh, uh, of a uh, interest collection counts because more savar tzadichad beribit mutar more savar tzadichad beribit asur. The question is whether you have one meaning where it's a situation where it may or may not ever happen that this ribit is really going to ha- occur. So then it's allowed. It's a machloket if it's allowed or not. No, everybody agrees you can't have an arrangement like that where it might come out to be ribit. Here the thing is that can he take ribit that he's going to return? Right, The thing is that here you're going to return the stuff. So the question is, if I'm going to return uh, the the uh, whatever I partook of during the time in the end anyway, so can I partake of it now? And then if it turns out that I end up returning the field, so it turns out that it was actually not a sale, but it was actually a loan, right? Because we, it turns out that uh, instead of it being a sale, we reverse the uh, we, we we undo the sale, and it turns out that all along I was really just lending you money. For uh, and I was holding your property. I was lending you money, and now I get my money back. So it's basically I loaned you the money, but I was benefiting from your field the whole time. But the thing is, if I can return to you whatever benefit that I took during that time, that should maybe be okay. Okay. Now the question is that according to that, then you would have to say that in our Mishnah we're talking about also with Rabbi Meir that that if the synagogue is eventually returned to the community, that the person who had bought it would have to also pay the community back for whatever the amount of rental that it would normally be, because otherwise he basically got rent free living for a certain amount of time for lending us the money, and then when we took the bit Knesset back, we took the synagogue back, um, we've given him extra benefit beyond what he loaned us in the purchase price of the synagogue. So therefore, it would have to be that he would have to pay up for that too, according to this concept. But basically, the idea is, it could be hypothetically a situation of rebate, it could be a situation of, uh, in, of interest whenever you have a sale where, where the buyer gets benefit but then ends up returning the item because then the buyer basically lent you money, got a benefit out of the item in the meantime, and then got his money back. So it's a kind of a rebate. In any case, Chachamim say that you can sell a synagogue permanently. A person can urinate four amot away from where he prayed. Right, uh, or within four amot of where he prayed. Amar Rav Yosef, Ma'ikam Ashvalan. What's the chidush here? What's the novelty here? Tanya, we learned it already. Rav Yehuda Omer, Mochrin Otal Shum Chazer, Velokech Mashiyotze, Velokech Mashiyotze Yase. We said that a person can purchase a synagogue. You can sell a synagogue, and the purchaser, whatever he wants to do with it, he'll do with it. Meaning, even if he wants to make a bathroom there, it's no problem. So obviously. Uh, you can urinate within four amot of where a person prayed because otherwise you wouldn't be able to make a synagogue site into a bathroom. 
Torah says, no, Avafilu Rabbanan, no Kamriyel Abet HaKneset, the Kaviyah Kiddushatei. And even the rabbis, they're only talking about Abet Knesset, where they say that there's a limit that you can't sell it to be a bathroom. But but a place that you just prayed in, of course it doesn't permanently sanctify its surroundings. A person who's praying should go four amot away from where he prayed and urinate. And the person who urinates should go four amot away and then pray. I understand that a person who urinates has to move four amot away in order to pray because we learned how far do you have to go from urine and from excrement? Right, But why should a person who prays have to go four amot away from where he prayed to urinate? Because if that's true, then basically you're saying that every road in Narada'a is a holy place because people were praying all the time on the streets and every single place is a holy place and you couldn't urinate anywhere. So it says, Rather read it, not that he has to go four amot away, but he has to wait the amount of time it takes to walk, walk for Amot before praying, I'm mean, sorry, before urinating after he prayed. Now, again, if you're saying that it's really talking about not distance, but time, so we understand if a person is, urinates, he should wait for Amot worth of time. Okay, because he's still dripping from his body. But why, again, should someone who prayed have to wait four amot of time, the amount of time it takes to traverse four amot, why should he have to wait, wait that amount of time before he goes to urinate? So, because for that amount of time that takes to, to go four amot, his tefillah is still organized in his mouth, and his lips are still moving with the prayers. In other words, as a result, he's still the prayer is still coming out. So if he urinates while the prayer is still coming out, it will be disrespectful to the tefillah, and therefore he should wait between urinating and praying, and also between praying and urinating, so he's done praying completely before he attends to his bod- bodily functions.